This is The Guardian. Today, the cost of rice in Sri Lanka has nearly doubled. Bread prices are up 28%. Electricity is down to a few hours a day. The rising cost of living is threatening governments around the world. Will Sri Lanka be the first domino to fall? back our country, give us back our money. Hannah Ellis-Peterson, The Guardian's South Asia correspondent, has been in the Sri Lankan capital, Colombo, covering the biggest protests since the island's independence. The atmosphere in the protests is really electric. You've got a huge mix of people. They are singing songs, they are dancing. There are little kids on the shoulders of their parents. There are old ladies who are sitting in their camping chairs. And there is just this real camaraderie between all the protesters. It feels incredible on the ground, but what's fueling the protests is an economic catastrophe that's left ordinary people reeling. People can't afford their daily rice, their dal, their basic necessities. People can't get on buses to come to work, to go to school. How much worse can it get? There's no petrol, there's no diesel. Kids can't sit their exams because there's no paper. The price of gas, oil, bread, timber, nearly everything is going up around the world. The cost of living crisis is squeezing budgets in the UK. In Sri Lanka, it's toppling governments. It feels like the whole city has kind of come together in this space and they're there day and night. It's 7.30 right now. If I go down there, there's probably thousands of protesters outside the president's residence. With electricity down to a few hours a day and supplies of medicine running out, Sri Lanka could be a warning to the world of how lockdowns, inflation, and now the war in Ukraine might tip some economies over the edge. It's already turning bloody. Yesterday, a protester was killed by police and nearly a dozen others injured, the first casualties from this unrest. But there are also signs on the streets of Colombo of something more hopeful, that a crisis can show people what they have in common and lead them to demand not just a new economy, but a new society too. We don't just want these toxic individuals that plague our government out. We also want to restructure the whole system that stands on the pillars of greed and corruption. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, how Sri Lanka's economic collapse is devastating the country's poorest and bringing a divided island together. (laughs) 
Hannah, we're talking to you from one of my very favourite places from when I used to cover South Asia. And it sounds like the atmosphere in Sri Lanka at the moment is angry, but also, in a way, quite exhilarating. What's going on there? Well, Sri Lanka is currently going through the worst economic crisis it's gone through since it became independent. People are on the streets because they can't eat, they can't get fuel, they can't get medicines. The whole of the economy has gone into freefall and people's lives are getting destroyed. So we are facing so many crises. We have no money, people have no gas to cook, people have no money to buy food. So this has to stop. Something has to change in this country. So we are here to make that change. It's a crisis unlike anything anyone's seen before in this country, which is saying something. You know, it went through 26 years of civil war. It's gone through huge amounts of financial upheaval before. But this is just unprecedented. And the core issue here is that Sri Lanka has run out of foreign currency reserves. Okay, excuse me for what might be a basic question, but why does a country need foreign currency reserves? Like, why does it need this stockpile of American dollars? Well, Sri Lanka is a small island of 22 million people. And while it produces some food, it isn't entirely self-sufficient. You need foreign reserves to buy food. You need it to buy medicines. Without dollars in your bank accounts, you are literally isolated from the world and you can't buy anything. And that's what's happened to Sri Lanka at this point. People are spending eight, nine hours queuing for petrol. They can't get rice. There's no milk powder here. There were fuel tankers of diesel sitting in the ports. They didn't have enough dollars to bring them in and to pay for it. There are farmers who have rice and vegetables rotting away in their storehouses because they can't get the fuel to bring it to the market. They can't run the mills to process the paddy to make it into rice. You know, the entirety of the economy of life here comes to a grinding halt if you can't buy the basics from abroad and bring them into the country. And if you're a Sri Lankan right now and you go to the supermarket, what are you seeing? Everything costs three to four times more if you can even find it in the shops. I've spoken to several people who say they only have one meal a day and they just have rice and maybe one vegetable because vegetables are so expensive now. In a country which is known as the kind of rice bowl of South Asia, it's so abundant here, fruit and vegetables. So it's absolutely insane that they're suffering food shortages. And the Speaker of Parliament stood up the other day and said, famine is on the horizon for the citizens of Sri Lanka. That's the kind of severity of what they're facing right now. God, that's really distressing to hear about those kinds of price rises and the pressure they must be putting on working class people. But what you're describing, Hannah, isn't unique. I mean, it sounds like the kinds of stories we're hearing from the US, the UK and Europe, but just much more extreme and impacting on people who are much poorer to start with. How does it feel, Dan, at these protests that you've been covering? It's a funny mix because on one hand, you do have this terrible desperation. People's situations and their lives are absolutely awful. They can barely survive. But then on the streets, you have this incredible electric atmosphere where people are fighting for their rights and fearlessly calling for Parliament to take accountability for what has happened and for them to resign. This is huge democratic fervour that's gripped Sri Lanka. And it's amazing because the people on the streets here are not just middle classes and they are not just students. They are everyone. And Sri Sri Lanka is a country which you will know full well is still so divided down ethnic and religious lines. And yet here you have the Singhala Buddhist majority protesting side by side with Tamils. You have trade union protests happening next to Muslim protests where Muslims are breaking their fast under rainbow umbrellas of the LGBT community. This has never been seen before in Sri Lanka. And people are talking about a kind of betrayal that they were fed this lie of majority and minority nationalist and divisive politics. And they feel like 
this is the thing that ultimately has caused the destruction of Sri Lanka. One of the processes that I'm going to, it's happening at Gullface, which is this big stretch of lawn looking out onto the sea in Colombo. It's in the centre and it's surrounded by all these towering skyscrapers, the projects that were being built under the Rajapaks. They're monuments to wealth and they're empty, so many of them, because people can't afford them. The support of population, because we, we understand there will be drastic measures to address the situation. For that, we really, really need to have a government in place that has public support and legitimacy. This government has lost public legitimacy. We can't have a so I met this man, Theo Garajo-Waradis. He's an activist. He's also a senior lecturer at the University of Colombo. He was part of this LGBT protest, which is very unusual in Sri Lanka. It's still illegal to be gay in Sri Lanka. But here they were, defiantly standing by the side of a roundabout, waving their flags and calling for accountability. The economic depression has affected everybody. Yeah. And particularly for your community, we have been marginalised many times. Yeah. Like, it's the first person to kick out of a job would be a trans person, a queer person, yeah. as opposed to a cisgender person. We understand the suffering of the people. Yeah. So we don't want a president who doesn't understand these things. What is your message to God's Step down. And leave, leave us. We want a peaceful life. I met these two old women. They were in their sort of 60s and 70s. They have to give back all the money that they have robbed. And they spoke about how they used to be terrified of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, which is something that people say a lot. Activists will say that even when they were protesting against the Rajapaksas, you never mentioned Gotta's name. He was known for just cracking down that he'll arrest you if you say anything bad against him. He had this kind of fierce reputation in Sri Lankan politics, and that's what he was elected on in 2019, and the shift away from that, which is what these women were saying. He's a very wicked man, so people were scared, but now people are so fed up because they can't feed their children. Surrounded by thousands of people shouting, got to go home, got to go to jail. It is remarkable. I was interviewing Ranul Wickremesinghe, the former prime minister, and he described it as a sort of Wizard of Oz moment where the curtain has been pulled away from this man and actually he's been exposed for just being a man and he's not scary at all. And I think that's a really interesting point here because how he can go on from this point is really interesting. This idea of this fierce, terrifying president who you cannot cross, that's disappeared now. Hannah, most people will know that Sri Lanka had a long, bloody civil war between the government, dominated by Singhala Buddhists, and militants from the minority Tamil community, and that the war ended with an offensive by the government that killed tens of thousands of Tamil civilians, a campaign that was actually overseen by the current president, Gotabaya Rajapaksa. Now, you told me that Sri Lankans in the streets today don't just want to overhaul the economy, they want to transform the politics of the country too. What is that politics, and how do the Rajapaksas fit into it? Sri Lanka is entirely dominated by singular Buddhist majority politics, and the face of that politics is the Rajapaksas. And they've used that politics of division to maintain power for 20 years. Similar to his brother Mahinda during his two terms as president, Many Tamil and Muslim voters reject the Rajapaksas. Gotta's name is the one being brandished on the streets, but people also calling for the Rajapaksas to resign because it's the Rajapaksa family who are responsible really here. 
since he came into power, the former president and his brother Mahinda is now the prime minister. His other brother, Basil, is the finance minister. There were overall six Rajapaksas in government. And so this is why it's utterly unimaginable and really amazing to see on the streets Tamils marching side by side with singular Buddhists and people in the South calling out this politics of nationalism and saying, we don't want this anymore. This isn't actually benefiting us. This is ultimately destroying us because the concentration of power that allowed is the thing that actually ultimately got Sri Lanka into this crisis. It's maybe taken 13 years for people to re-examine Sri Lanka's political system, but there are opposition politicians, there are Tamil politicians, there are Tamil activists who say maybe this will be the turning point for Sri Lanka where we recognize ourselves as a unified country rather than as majority and minority. Okay, so Sri Lankans re-elected the Rajapaksa family because they wanted stability. Even though the family had crushed people's rights the last time they were in power, this time they promised to get the economy moving to help people get richer. So how has that gone so disastrously wrong? So the previous government had begun to instigate a system of austerity. They'd already gone to the IMF because Sri Lanka for a long time had been suffering from financial problems. The previous government had started to raise taxes. They'd started to implement all kinds of financially responsible policies. The Rajapaksas came in and they obliterated all of this. They lowered taxes to be about 8% of GDP. It would usually be about 20%. Meanwhile, the governor of the central bank was brought in and he began to print money. And so during the time the Rajapaksas were in power, the economy went up 0.1%. The amount of cash in the economy grew by 40%. So you can imagine the kind of inflation that started to cause. The country was gradually downgraded. It got shut out of international markets. But all this cash around meant people kept spending on imports that the country couldn't afford. And the country was importing more and more. Its debts were going higher and higher. You then had COVID thrown into the mix. So All the usual foreign revenue that would flow into Sri Lanka that would boost its foreign currency basically stopped. And also the remittances that were coming in from outside of Sri Lanka also stopped because globally everyone was suffering financially. And whilst every other country who was suffering in this way went to the IMF, the Rajapaksas absolutely refused. They already had huge amounts of foreign debt from when they were in power before. And all of the debts that they were taking, they weren't investing properly. They also pegged the currency to the dollar at a ridiculously high rate. And then when they floated the currency, it sank. So now it's the world's worst performing currency. And they were having to pay off debts using their minimal foreign reserves until they got to the point where they are now, which is where their foreign reserves are basically at zero. And they can't afford to import anything, even the basics. Okay, so it sounds like part of this was down to bad luck. Things like COVID or the war in Ukraine pushing up food prices. But it sounds like the much bigger problem was that the government made a lot of really bad decisions and then tried to fix those with even worse decisions. Was anybody in the room with the Rajapaksas trying to tell them these economic ideas you have won't work? They're bad ideas. Everyone who was watching it was watching with horror and they just didn't listen. The way that Rajapaksa set up his presidency, he introduced an amendment to the constitution called the 19th Amendment, which has concentrated power further into the presidency. So he has more financial oversight. He can kind of make decisions on his own. He's taken powers from parliament and put them in his own hands. So there's very little accountability 
for the decisions that he's making. And Rajapaksa just would fire people who tried to warn him against bad policies. A really good example of this is the ban on fertilizers, which they introduced last year. All chemical fertilizers would be banned and Sri Lanka would go entirely organic. But up to this point, the way that Sri Lanka farming had operated was it had ensured farmers had a huge over-dependency on fertilizers. There was enormous amounts of subsidies for fertilizers and farmers have no idea how to farm organically in Sri Lanka just because of the way that it's worked for so many years. So it caused absolute mass panic and protest. Farmers staged protests in several areas today demanding fertilizer. The All Ceylon Farmers Federation and the Mahaveli Sea Zone Farmers Association organized the protest march in the Yatakandia. Hello, hi. Hi, how are you? I actually travelled up to a farming region in the north of Sri Lanka to talk to some of the farmers about the impact this has had on them. Mainly our crop in rice, mm. and uh, here it's uh, some kind of bananas also. And all of them said the same thing, that it was utterly I'm devastating. The community has fallen in the sense of income at an extremely low point. So the New Year is coming, they don't have the means to at least celebrate New Year. If there was a harvest, it was 50% or under of the harvest they got the previous years. That a lot of them weren't able to actually sell anything. They were just using the crops they had to eat. So there was a huge shortage of food, shortage of rice, shortage of vegetables. So prices went up alongside that already being mass inflation in the country. When I was driving up there, you go past these petrol stations and there were just maybe hundreds of tractors queuing for petrol and they'd been there all night. You know, I was there at six in the morning and these guys were just sleeping in their tractors waiting for fuel. And you speak to them and they say, yeah, this is a queue. They'll have fuel for maybe half of us and the rest of us have to go home and then we can't farm our produce. And there's such a small window for planting produce that if they miss that window, then their yield goes down, their money goes down. And that has an impact on the whole country because that means there's just not enough rice to go around. So these are the kind of economic policies that all have come together to really get Sri Lanka to the point where it is now. Hannah, all of this is a really toxic mix, putting people under extraordinary pressure. When did it start to bubble over into the political crisis that you're seeing today? About a month to five weeks ago, the shortages just really came home. That's when it really began to bite. And as soon as people couldn't get fuel, as soon as people couldn't get food, there started to be these rumblings. And it just began in a kind of suburb outside of Colombo where some people held a candlelight vigil and then some more people started to gather. And then organically in neighborhoods, people started to come out. So it was these very small protests that were happening and it just gained more and more momentum. They're calling it Sri Lanka's Arab Spring, a mass uprising in a country on the brink of economic collapse. You started to get invites to things on WhatsApp. People started to gather in the really central parts of Colombo. Independent Square became a really big thing. And because there really wasn't anyone untouched by this, and particularly because the powerful, wealthy people in Colombo they also couldn't get what they needed. Their money wasn't even able to buy them what they wanted. And their money had halved in the space of about four weeks. These are the things that get people out on the streets. And they, people started to blame the government. And there was no sense that the government was responding to them. Angry, frustrated and desperate, protesters surround the president's office in Colombo under the eyes of the police. 
A curfew was introduced, a state of emergency was introduced. We begin this broadcast with some big news coming in from Sri Lanka. The President Gotabaya Rajapaksha has now issued a gazette that prohibits anyone from being in public spaces like parks, recreation spots, railway, seashore, public roads and more. None of it stopped them. We would like to tell the government that whatever happened today, they can't stop tens of thousands of people joining the struggle. It is a joke if the government thinks it can stop this people's protest by using barriers. And you had amazing things where people would come out of work and in the 10 minutes before they got on the bus would be standing with a sign at the bus stop saying, go home, gotta. People protesting in every little spare second that they had. Wow. And Hannah, you said that Rajapaksa was a strong man, that he had this terrible human rights record. How has his government responded to these protests? Well, up to this point, they had been remarkably peaceful and the people who were out in the streets were making a huge effort to keep them that way. There had been some retaliation with some students in Kandy, some tear gas had been fired. In a suburb of Kandy, protesters' grievances were met with tear gas and water cannon. And there have been records of people getting arrested, but it had all been quite sporadic. And overall, there was a remarkable lack of police presence, particularly in this Gore Face protest, which is in Colombo, where thousands and thousands of people have been gathering every day. I think there was a sense that there was actually a lot of sympathy amongst police officers for the protesters, because this is a crisis that has left anyone untouched. But then saying that, we had an incident on Tuesday night in the town of Rambukana, which is about an hour outside of Colombo, where police opened fire on a group of protesters who were blocking a railway. And one person died. There's reports at least 11 people have been injured. And this is the first death that's happened. This is the first time the police have opened fire with live ammunition on protesters. And it could be an indicator that things are turning. Or it could be an isolated incident. We really don't know at this point. And you mentioned that you're seeing a really broad coalition of people out there on the streets. Is there some group organising all of this unrest, some kind of structure to it, or is it much more spontaneous? There really is no structure. I mean, I've tried to find it, and there is no overarching group. Mahinda Rajapaksa invited some protesters to come and meet him, and they have turned down that invitation. They've called for him to come to Gullface because they say there's no group that represents them. If he wants to talk to the protesters, he's got to come down to the protests. So there's no leader here. There's no political motivation. They've specifically told politicians not to join him. Because I think the call now is actually resign all 225 MPs. People have completely lost faith in the entire political system. The Sri Lankan governing coalition has lost its majority in parliament after more than 40 MPs belonging to various coalition partners walked out of the governing alliance amid growing unrest over an economic crisis. And it'll take a lot, I think, even for the opposition to get that back. It's a really remarkable shift you're describing. This family who were incredibly divisive, who have been accused of favouring one group of Sri Lankans over another, have in fact had the opposite effect. This crisis is actually bringing people on this very divided island together. Yeah, and it actually seems to be genuine. The young people who are driving this movement, they're the ones who are saying, you know, no more to this. You know, I'm not out here as a Sinhalese Buddhist. I'm not here as a Tamil. I'm not out here as a Muslim. I'm here as a young person who wants something different for the future of my country. We think that as the youth, we have a lot to do to undo the mistakes and to try to rectify the harm that... I was at Independence Square and I met this 19-year-old girl called Sarika. She was part of this movement of young people. It was called Yellow for Democracy. And they were out there talking about the Constitution and they summed up for me a lot of the sentiment that has been driving these protests in recent weeks. We've transcended boundaries that we never thought would happen. 
and while that is very uplifting, we hope that this unity is not maintained only in terms of hatred for a certain family. We hope this unity and this momentum is maintained until we actually create systemic change and that we remember this moment in history because we forget really fast, you know, we're all here together and then once small change is made, we all go back to our separate little microcosms and our little echo chambers of ideas. And so I hope that this signifies a turning point in terms of how we view one another. We've transcended boundaries that we never thought would happen. Coming up, what Sri Lanka's economic collapse tells us about the crisis facing other countries, but also the opportunities. Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Hannah, Sri Lanka does have some powerful neighbours in India and a little further away, China. Have they offered much help? Yeah, they have. They've got credit lines from India. They've got some fuel from India, fuel and supplies from Bangladesh. They're getting some Chinese rice. These are very short-term ways to tide over some of it, but people are quite wary. There's geopolitics at play in terms of going to China and going to India. China takes control of a Sri Lankan port on one of the world's busiest shipping routes. It's all part of its ambitious plan to create a new Silk Road. But Sri Lanka's powerful neighbour, India, is worried. Many thought that the Rajapaksas didn't act earlier because they thought that China might help them out. And China didn't help them out as much as they thought they might. But yes, there's not a sense that they have a huge idea of what to do in the short term to help people, aside from really going begging to their neighbours, which Sri Lankans are finding a mortifying process for their country to have to go through, to be honest, and is kind of extraordinary for a nationalist strongman leader to have to go begging to Bangladesh, for instance, to ask for some food. And Tana, one way that governments have handled these kinds of crises in the past is to get a bailout from the IMF. Is that what Sri Lanka is going to do here? Yes, after a lot of resistance from the Rajapaksas and them kind of putting it off for what many people say is a criminal length of time, they are now going to the IMF and it seems that they are considering IMF to be the golden bullet that will get Sri Lanka out of this crisis. They're looking for about two to three billion in terms of funds to help them get back on their feet and also assistance in restructuring this 51 billion in foreign loans that they owe. President Gotabaya Rajapaksa has appointed 70 new cabinet ministers. The appointment of the new ministers comes amid widespread anti-government protests. The biggest change reflected in the list of ministers is the absence of any name from the powerful Rajapaksa dynasty. Yes, there is a cabinet now, so they have an actual government who can negotiate with the IMF, but the opposition are still talking about a vote of no confidence, which could then dissolve the current government as it is. And if you've got this constant state of political instability, all these people on the street who are calling for the government to resign, then it makes it very difficult to have these negotiations with the IMF and to actually implement a proper 
financial program which could really get Sri Lanka on the pathway to recovery. So going to the IMF this weekend, having this new cabinet in no way means that Sri Lanka is sort of on the pathway to stability or on the pathway to getting its way out of this. But if they go for a hard default, that is catastrophic for Sri Lanka. It destroys their credit rating for decades to come. Hannah, as the cost of living grows around the world, I can imagine a lot of countries will be tempted by a Rajapaksa-style leader, someone who says, if you elect me, that might mean fewer democratic and civil rights, but I will make the economy strong, I'll make our country great again. In Sri Lanka, at least, does that kind of bargain now look like a false choice? Certainly in Sri Lanka it does. Ranul, who was the previous Prime Minister, said to me, this has been the problem for Sri Lankan politics for decades. It's never really been about policies. It's just been about slogans, about strong men who can solve all your problems. And that's kind of, he felt, the sort of undoing of their government because ultimately that's what people wanted. And now I think people have realised that actually you need policy, you need expertise. I can't speak to the rest of the world. You know, people vote for strong men, politicians, for a variety of reasons. But... Certainly in Sri Lanka, I think it's shaken up people's perception of what they want from politics and politicians. People are holding up signs saying we want audits and accountability. That's what people are demanding. And Hannah, people are calling this Sri Lanka's Arab Spring moment. And I can't help but think a lot of those revolutions ended with the strong men getting even stronger and using violence, playing on ethnic tensions, all of it to cement their place in power. Over the weekend, we saw Gotabaya Rajapaksa downplay these protests as beach parties. He implied they were being funded by terrorist groups. Are people on the ground in Colombo worried at all that that's one direction, that all of these protests could go? There is a concern, but certainly there is also an absolute defiance on the streets that they won't allow this to happen. And I think it's interesting that narrative that the Rajapaksas are trying to play on nationalists and trying to evoke the war on the streets is just really not sticking. But the thing is, these tensions do still exist and there are impending food shortages, impending medical shortages. Everyone says it's going to get worse. So there is, you know, a concern that this could then create a shift in these protests as people get more desperate and possibly more open to kind of sinister narratives. But ultimately on the streets right now, you've got this new generation of Sri Lankans, young people who are incredibly determined for these to remain peaceful protests, for these narratives not to take hold. And they're very optimistic about what can be done here. As terrible as the mood is in Sri Lanka economically, there is a real spirit of defiance and democracy. And so that's something very remarkable. Hannah, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much, Michael. That was Hannah Ellis-Peterson, The Guardian's South Asia correspondent. Many thanks to her. And you can read all her reporting from Sri Lanka at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Axel Kakoutier. The executive producers are Maithli Rao and Phil Maynard. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. 